episode 57 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. When was the last time you made someone cry and it made your day? For me, it happened in May when I was hosting the Screwball series for my Sassmouth Dames film club here in Dublin. The DVD I had of Theodora Goes Wild wouldn't play, so I had my backup. I always have a backup, which for that time was Love Affair from 1939. If you think about it, the first half of Love Affair exhibits the screwball hallmarks, so it was a good substitution. Afterwards, when I turned up the lights, I saw at least six women with tear-stained faces. Women choked back sobs as they gathered their things to leave. I was so pleased. My smile was brighter than Grafton Street around Christmas time. Is there a greater gift than a film that makes you cry your eyes out? By the way, my makeup was intact at the end. If I'm honest, I have never been able to watch Love Affair without tears streaming down my face like those plug-in waterfall things they have in the spa. If I just think about the scene for too long, my eyes will well up. So I cheated during the screening. I kept my eyes closed. Where would you find a film as moving as Love Affair today? Where would you find a film that balances comedy, sex, faith, and earnest, barefaced emotion? From the opening credit sequence with the titles printed on pristine embossed invitation cards, viewers know it's a prestige picture. A montage of radio news broadcasts opens the picture. From New York, Paris, and London, featuring reports of the impending nuptials of one Michel Marnet. His love life not only leads the news, it's the only news. Around the globe, people are fascinated by updates on the great lover. Yet on a transatlantic voyage, after only a few minutes, it's Irene Dunn who has the most desirable man in the world back in her cabin alone. Who's the real pickup artist? When we first see Charles Boyer as Michel Marnet, he gets the glamorous entrance that's usually reserved for dames in women's pictures. When he's paged all over the ship's decks and, decks and salon, he finally appears on the stairs. If you want to make a grand entrance, do it on the stairs. In women's pictures, especially, the stairs are arguably the most significant stage. A staircase draws attention or allows one a moment of reflection between spaces to consider the next course of action. Stairs also have that whole sexual Freudian thing happening. If you think about the women who played big scenes on the stairs, there's Constance Bennett in What Price Hollywood, Lana Turner in Zigfield Girl, Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce or Queen Bee. They all played big scenes on the stairs. Betty Davis once said that she spent half her life in Warners on the stairs, and she received her big break in the theater because she knew how to fall down the stairs thanks to her training from Martha Graham. I could go on and on. So we see him. He's on the stairs. A leopard has his spots, and a swoon merchant has his tuxedo. Charles Boyer was born for evening wear. 
With a cigarette dangling from his lower lip, Boyer plays a man who accepts admiration from women the way other men do death and taxes. Where other men who puff away on cigarettes look like angry smokestacks, Charles Boyer somehow makes every cigarette suggest an intimate moment shared with a woman as though it were pillow talk. Before he's reached the bottom of the stairs, he's surrounded by four young women asking for his autograph. One girl adds, make it sizzling. Scribbling some words next to his face on a magazine cover they produce, Boyer is bored and merely glances at the girls before he chides them for their rude manners. When he reads the telegram that was sent him, a gust of wind blows it through a salon porthole. Enter Irene Dunn, cosmopolitan snoop. Viewers see only her face through the ship's porthole as she reads the telegram. The camera frame stays on Irene Dunn's face, which emphasizes her wit before we can see the rest of her. On the high seas, Irene Dunn's face is the tip of an iceberg made of sass, and it's about to collide into Charles Boyer and sink his whole smooth operator ladies' man routine. Boyer wants to retrieve the telegram. He addresses her in French, a rare treat in his American film credits but she ignores him in favor of reading the juicy details. She asks him to identify himself. Irene exaggerates her response. Don't tell me you're the fella. She mocks him, skewering his great lover reputation. He recites the message as much to prove his bona fides as a ladies' man as his identity. He recites a line a woman wrote to him about a passionate night they spent together in Lake Como. Irene remains shockproof and unimpressed. Assuming the role of confidant, she queries in a near whisper, It's all right, huh? It was nice. Far from any wallflower or proper lady routine, Irene shares his sexual conquest with the voice of experience. She knows it was nice. She rattles him on the spot, though, by making him confirm it. Irene Don takes the upper hand here. In this scene, she's in the dominant position. She's shaken up his game and becomes the one who's more worldly, more cosmopolitan. In fact, she downgrades his bedroom gymnastics to less enthralling than another national pastime. She asks him if you think it'll ever take the place of baseball and then wrinkles her nose and mouths awry, no. Boye's head is spinning. Who is this woman? He lurches in circles, looking for her when she disappears from the porthole window. Suddenly, Irene appears again. She strolls on deck like a bawd, with one hand on her hip, like she was Mae West, Impeccably dressed in a gown, boxy fur, and a delicate crown of curls, Irene Don swaggers. Boyer is nearly panting for her as she sails by, cool as can be, stopping for just a moment to show him up once more when she says, What's the matter? Lose it again? She treats him like a man chasing his hat. Michel Marnay looks wobbly, like he might be blown overboard with the next gust of wind. Trying to recover, he trots out familiar pickup lines. During their conversation, they move from the ship's deck to her cabin. 
coy she resists going to his cabin with an excuse that her mother always told her never to go to a man's room in any month ending in R. An old rule for oysters gets repurposed for how to best enjoy a swoon merchant. Sex is never very far from the topic of their conversation. Michelle Marnet tells her she saved him. He was worried that beautiful women didn't travel anymore. It was going to be a long, lonely cruise until she showed up. Deadpan, she asks, have you been getting results with a line like that, or would I be surprised? He responds, if you were surprised, that would surprise me. In an elegant way, he's calling her a whore who's been around the block. Irene bristles. She responds, that sounds like a nasty crack. I could make a few, too, if I felt like it. She then goes on to ask him about his fiance. One way to pull a man up short when he's deep in his seduction cups is to remind him of his commitments. Slowly, Michel Marnet admits the passionate night in Lake Como was with his fiancé's best friend. Irene reacts, which tells us she's not quite as blasé and worldly as she might have him believe. Slowly, though, they move beyond the masks, the fronts they both put on for the world. How many men, after all, admit that they're two-timing a woman? Irene comes clean with her fair share about being kept by her boss. Their honesty comes out of nowhere. Aboard ship, they don't owe each other anything but the pleasure of each other's company. Despite other romantic entanglements, they're drawn to each other. They are both, after all, kept by the rich. Terry likes her jewels and furs and things, and Michel Marnet has never worked one single day in his life, his whole life. This picture could not be what it is without the middle section, when they take a day trip to Madeira and visit Michel Marnet's grandmother, played by the formidable Maria Uspenskaya. The middle section reveals what's underneath the glamour and the seduction. We learn that he's not a complete scoundrel with women because he dotes on his grandmother. Both Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer were defined by their Catholic faith, and when they kneel in the little island chapel, it's an earnest. Beneath the sexy flirt games, they share a foundation that spells out a future beyond pink champagne. Anyone can be dazzling and full of allure by moonlight on a ship's deck. Like Barbara Stanwyck's character says in The Lady Eve, they say a moonlit deck is a woman's business office. During the day trip to Madeira, the lovers get to witness what they are like in the sober island light in the presence of family, faith, and tradition. When their ship finally docks in New York, Michel and Terry vow to meet in six months at the top of the Empire State Building. Michel vows that it would take him six months to know if he were worthy to say what was in his heart. Who could say no to that? Michelle trades the pink champagne and the tuxedo for coveralls and painting a billboard for cheap beer. But since he becomes an artist with a paycheck, he's happy and he's ready to declare himself. Terry had picked up a job singing in a Philadelphia nightclub. On her way to meet him that day in July, Terry is struck down by a car, but she refuses to send word. Disabled, Irene trades her job singing in the nightclub to lead an orphan's choir. Terry McKay's noble sacrifice looks superhuman, the heroic choice that few mortal women would be able to endure. 
Terry's accident is the impossible secret that for our dramatic purposes, we know must not be kept. From Terry's point of view, she can't control much, but she can decide to be independent, which she had already done when she decided she would not be a kept woman anymore. How could she lose her independence? Terry refuses to risk that Michelle will confuse duty with love. Irene Dunn, on her part, was frank about what she would have done in the same situation. She told a reporter that she herself would act nothing like the character on screen. Irene said, If I had been in that girl's place far from hiding, I would have trundled my wheelchair up and down the sidewalks of New York looking for Mr. Boyer. One night, by chance, they meet in the theater, both accompanied by their former fiancés. Their exchange is brief and loaded with tension. He has no idea why she failed to meet him at the top of the Empire State Building. Later, though, Michel looks her up, and he stops by on Christmas Eve before he sails for Europe. This is the scene, the scene that always makes me weep. When Michel Marnet enters Terry's flat, she's sitting up on the couch with a book, her legs stretched out under a blanket. He's halting, tentative. He sits on the other side of the room without crowding her, and he never takes his eyes from Terry McKay. He's obviously still gutted, still in love with her. But he turns the tables on their misconnection. It was he who did not arrive on the 1st of July. He asks how long she waited and then provides the answer, until midnight in a rainstorm. What did she do then, he asks. Irene, queen of put on a good face, replies, well, then I said to myself, why don't you go home and get tight? Boyer smiles, reacting to the incongruity of Irene Dunn drowning her sorrows. It's the joke he shares with us in the audience. At one point, Boyer stands with his back to the door. He does something I've never seen an actor do before. He's smoking, and when he exhales, a big plume of smoke clouds his face. What he does is, Boyer takes a step back out of the smoke, and then he takes another step to the side. What it says to me is that he cannot bear any amount of barrier between them. Nothing must obstruct his view of her now that the woman he loves is in his sight. Not even smoke can come between them now. Even though he was devastated when she did not make the rendezvous, there's not one moment in this scene that I sense a trace of anger in his demeanor, like so many other men will play this. He is always present, always connected by the thread of love that binds them. Amused with her still, he says with a big smile, oh, so you can ask questions when she deflects answering any of his. He has a Christmas present for her, he says. Of course he does. It's his grandmother's lace shawl, which she wanted Terry to have. He drapes it over her with as much care as though it were made of fairy wings. Now Terry knows why her letters were returned. After a few moments, though, they come to an impasse. There doesn't seem to be anything more to say. She won't tell him. Wistful, crestfallen, he starts to go, and then he stops and turns. He painted her like that once, he tells her, with the shawl. 
The art dealer who managed his paintings told him it was the best thing he had ever done, but he didn't want to sell it. A girl would come and admire it. Michel, being who he is, he said, give the painting to the girl because she was poor, and besides that, she was in a... Charles Boyer stops suddenly. His eyes travel over Irene on the sofa, then dart around the room looking to find it. Just before he walks into the bedroom, Irene's Terry McKay makes one last effort to stop him from finding out. She asks him again what time his ship sails. He ignores her and keeps going. Charles Boyer walks into her bedroom, turns, and then sees the portrait he painted of Terry hanging on the wall. She's the poor girl in the wheelchair. It's a very pagan scene that he painted for a story about Catholics. Kneeling, wearing the shawl, Terry receives a visitation in the painting from his grandmother, like the old woman was the archangel Gabriel. But instead of the Immaculate Conception, I suppose she hearkens the coming of a swoon merchant. Boyer looks at the painting for a full 45 seconds. The camera stays locked on him. His performance, the waves of thought and emotion that register on his face, should be studied by anyone interested in the actor's craft. His eyes are wide open. At first, he's merely shocked to realize that Terry is the girl in the wheelchair. He looks stricken then. Then comes the self-recrimination. You fool. You were feeling sorry for yourself while she was alone in that chair. I can hear his interior monologue, how he chastises himself for not being there when she needed him. The shame he feels then, the guilt and then he stops at one point mid-swallow, all choked up. With micro-changes in expression, Charles Boyer jettisons his masculine ego. Deep empathy takes hold of him, him a man who has never had to give anyone much thought. He gazes at the painting, which becomes a mirror and a portal that shows him what a selfish pig he's been his whole life long. It's an epiphany for him in oils. But then he bucks up, because he can't make this about him. He cannot make her dry his tears on top of everything else. If she can bear it, so must he. Why did it have to be her, he asks, he asks by her side again. Even now, Irene has her best face on. It isn't tragic, and Irene Dunn doesn't shed tears for herself. She tells him, if you can paint, I can walk. My podcast is devoted to women in classic Hollywood, but there are many men I adore. Joel McRae, Mel Douglas, George Raft, Don Amici, Ricardo Cortez, Pat O'Brien, James Cagney, Cary Grant, George Brent, Monty Cliff, Ty Power, George Sanders, Bill Holden, and Bob Mitchum. But Charles Boyer is my king of woman's pictures, the ultimate swoon merchant, because he projects the greatest quality of being present for women on screen. He sees them in a way other men don't. In his biography of Boyer, Larry Swindell quotes an unnamed supporting actress from one of his films from 1939 who had observed, I don't know of a woman who has made a picture with Charles without enjoying the experience. 
Women are comfortable with him because they sense right away that their bodies are safe. He isn't hell-bent on screwing them. This is more important than most people realize. Sex on a movie set is almost taken for granted, and any actress has to keep her legs crossed unless she just doesn't care. Maybe not every man is after it, but it's pretty much a custom, and easy as pie for a male star. Charles is one of the exceptions, though. Women become his friends because they trust him, and because of that trust, actresses play well with him. Whether he's being informal on set or acting for the camera, Charles does know how to handle women. Hollywood history bulges with tales of men who thought it was their due or felt that they should browbeat women for sex, not to mention the abundance of men who didn't bother with consent at all. Charles Boyer looked at women as human beings rather than conquests. That marks him out as nearly another species altogether. Sometimes I think you can tell so much from a man by his nose. I recall the scene in Primrose Path from 1940 when Marjorie Rambeau, as the family breadwinner in generations of sex workers, tells her daughter Ginger Rogers about men. She tells her that men with big noses are generous. A man can lie with his eyes or his mouth, but his nose will tell you if he's on the level. When the goddess molded Charles Boyer, she took a fiddling knife and cut the edge from the tip of his nose after she kissed him there, so he would be mindful of the gift she gave him. I marvel at that flat tip on his nose. What about his eyes? Charles Boyer's eyes would pierce the toughest hard-boiled dame. Dark and warm, his eyes compress intense heat of coal fired into diamonds. He always wore a hairpiece. Larry Swindell reports that Boyer had hair replacement surgery once his son Michael was born because he didn't want to look like an old father to his son. Toupees softened the pronounced cranial ridge he had running the length of his forehead. Did he need it? He looks better with hair. If women have 1,000 things they must do or wear to be camera ready, a little wiglet doesn't seem too much to ask of a man. But even when his waistline went, his hair gone, he's still very striking. And then there's his voice. Deep and hypnotic, it's a delicacy like vintage cognac and smoked oysters, only you can gorge yourself all you want. Charles Boyer does his thing with his mouth, usually when he's having an intimate conversation with women on film. It's not that he's sucking his teeth like women in Toni Morrison's novels do. What he does is he pulls in his cheeks and he knocks his tongue against the roof of his mouth. It's a little pause that shows how much he relishes talking to women, it, that he savors what he's about to say before he says it. It reminds me of that part in Larry Swindell's biography where he talks about the backstory on the set of Private Worlds from 1935. Initially, Boyer kept clashing with the director Gregory Lacava. LaCava happens to be my favorite film director, so you can understand why I hang on to this anecdote that features two of my favorite leading men. Charles Boyer and LaCava both liked talking to women, they liked listening to women, and they liked making pictures that told stories about women. 
but trouble arose early in the shoot when they argued about how Boye played a scene. Lakava stopped between takes and asked him a question. He wanted to know what language Boye was thinking in. Bristling, Boye snapped that he was French and he must think in French. Lakava replied, well, I say it's asinine to think one language and speak another. Miss Colbert is also French and can speak it very well, but ask her how she thinks. Swindell reports that Boyer recalled this moment of direction as one of the most important breakthroughs of his career. Boyer recognized that the difference in how he thought determined the nuance he needed to become a success in the American film industry. When he pauses to suck his cheeks and cluck his tongue, maybe it's also a moment for him to align the way he thinks with the way he speaks. In so many pictures, Charles Boyer admired women. His compliments weren't limited to the obvious territory. It wasn't just a woman's beauty, glamour, or grace that he complimented. He went beyond the surface to praise deeper qualities. Boyer played men who were proud of being with accomplishment women. He lifted them up rather than turn sour, or small, or angry in the company of gifted women. Boyer took the view that a desirable woman had brains to offer and made a man bigger, something more than he was. He adopted a self-deprecating approach that was not unsexed by a woman who might be smarter or more talented than he was. In Break of Hearts, a criminally underrated picture, he tells Catherine Hepburn, a composer, that he could never create original scores, that he can only interpret other people's music as a conductor. She creates and he interprets? Imagine a man today who defers the label of creative genius and goes even further to grant it to a woman. In Private Worlds, Claudette Colbert intercedes when a male patient goes berserk and nearly tears the arm off Charles Boyer. She's brave, heroic, and totally saves his ass. Boyer's character admits that he was all wrong about lady doctors, and he thanks her for saving him. Who is more dashing than when he rushes into Jean Arthur's bedroom pretending to be a jewel thief to save her from being sexually blackmailed by her husband in History is Made at Night? He admires Jean Arthur so much that to win her, he makes a dive restaurant into the toast of New York. Every night he waits for her, knowing that sooner or later she will walk through the door. The way he looks at Jennifer Jones banging on a clogged pipe is a study in admiration and ardor in Clooney Brown. Get a man who will build you a house full of complicated plumbing so you can bang away to your heart's delight. Boyer made three pictures with Irene Dunn. In When Tomorrow Comes, his second picture with her, made right after Love Affair, he can't stop gushing about the speech she makes during a waitress union meeting. He is astonished at the way she moves the crowd that pushes the vote towards a strike. His compliments are an admission of how cosseted his life as a musician has become. Yet Irene is in the trenches fighting for a better life, which reminds him of how the world works. Leaning forward in his chair, with one arm grasping the other, he listens intently. 
Then he gushes. You were superb. You were marvelous, simply marvelous. I've never heard anything like it. Irene looks cautious, but he continues to praise her oratory. I've never met a woman before who could make speeches, call strikes, serve pancakes, and look beautiful all at the same time. Is this a dream? For a man to recognize what we can do and achieve? When Tomorrow Comes doesn't have a happy ending, but there are set pieces in the film that rate as good as anything in cinema. In a restaurant, a union meeting hall, a scene by the East River, in a church in Long Island during a hurricane, the two make an ideal match. In their last picture together, Together Again, from 1944, audiences are treated to Irene Dunn's definitive bad girl role, which surpasses the time she allowed Preston Foster to talk her into hot sex on the train to New York. In Together Again, Irene plays a small-town mayor who walks into a strip club without batting an eye. Hijinks ensue, where she's left standing in her slip, During a police raid that follows, they mistake her for a burlesque queen and arrest Irene on the spot. Might I add that Irene Dunn was 45 years old when she was mistaken for a stripper. Boyer facilitates her wildling and is charmed throughout. They make an ideal pair, sexy adults who find a wellspring of passion where they least expect it. Love Affair was Leo McCary's next move after having won the Academy Award for Best Director for The Awful Truth, which also starred Irene Dunn. As a young man, McCary abandoned a lackluster career in law and then ran away to Hollywood where he started off working as a script girl, then a gag man, before he climbed the ranks to become a director. The director told Peter Bogdanovich in a deathbed interview included in Who the Devil Made It, that the idea for the story occurred to him on a return voyage from Europe. He stood with his wife on deck to catch the first glimpse of the Statue of Liberty, as he was advised to do by more seasoned travelers. McCary turned to his wife and said, Suppose you and I were talking to each other when the boat sailed from England, and we got to know each other on the trip. We felt ourselves inseparable. By the time... The trip was over. We were madly in love. But by the time the boat docked, we both found out that the each other is obligated to someone else. That was the story of the picture. Originally titled Love Match, the script ran into predictable trouble with the Breen office. In Backstory One, interviews with screenwriters of Hollywood's Golden Age, editor Patrick McGilligan includes an interview with Donald Ogden Stewart, who wrote Love Affair with Delmer Daves. David Ogden Stewart recalled that the production code censors argue that Irene Dunn's character had to pay for being a kept woman before she could have a happy ending with Charles Boyer. In order to not offend the code, they suggested that she be hit by a car and put into a wheelchair to atone. According to McCary, both Greta Garbo and Helen Hayes wanted to play Terry McKay. He joked with Peter Bogdanovich that his wife chose Irene Dunn for the part. It's hard to believe that McCary considered anyone else seriously for the part. When he had directed Dunn and the Awful Truth in 1937, she had no problem adapting to his freewheeling improvisational method. 
Leo McCary signed Dunn and Cary Grant for The Awful Truth without a finished script. Well, that production style terrified Cary Grant to the point where he begged to be let out of his contract and even offered to pay his way out or do another picture without pay. Irene Dunn felt inspired to join in the spirit of Make It Up As You Go. In an interview with James Bowden, Irene Dunn explained that when McCary handed bits of paper with dialogue in the morning, freshly written, she would take a few minutes to make sense of how connected to the characters and the story. Once she had gained the emotional context, she would dive right in, which is what she continued to do during the production of Love Affair. Charles Boyer had no trouble adapting to the rhythm of McCary's production method. Larry Swindell reported that Boyer received his first big break for a leading role in a stage production in Paris after the leading man who had been cast became seriously ill. The Parisian stage director was frantic, and out of sheer desperation, he listened to a man who recommended Boyer based on his skill with memorization. Since around the time he could read, Charles Boyer had honed a gift for committing text to memory. In only 12 hours, Boyer learned the entire script and took the stage just before curtain without the benefit of rehearsal or even meeting his leading lady. The reviews were glowing for Boyer from the very start of his acting career. When Leo McCary handed him dialogue each morning, Boyer was well equipped to meet the challenge. Wes Gehring's biography of Irene Dunn reports that Leo McCary gave Irene Dunn a centering device for her craft. When they would prepare to shoot a scene, he would remind her corned beef and cabbage. Irene interpreted his dictum to mean keep it natural. Irene's natural acting style combined with Charles Boyer's style, an actor Irene declared as the most reticent, and you have a winning formula. She said he never overdid anything. The pair of them here, you won't find a moment of scenery chewing, no upstaging, nothing overdone. In an interview with James Bowden, Irene Dunn said she kept a clause in her contract that gave her director approval. With the right director, Irene could relax and trust that everything else would fall into place. Emily Carmen's book, Independent Stardom, researched Irene's studio contracts and reported that she signed a limited option with Universal in 1937. She had written into her contract story and script approval, in addition to the director's approval. Irene Dunn also took a percentage of gross for many pictures. In many ways, her business savvy gave her more creative control over her career than many other women had with more traditional contracts within the studio system. Irene Dunn received her fourth nomination for Best Actress for Love Affair. In an interview with James Bowden, Irene spoke about the time when she went to see a revival of Love Affair in the 1970s. She remembered that Charles Boyer used to joke about how he needed to prepare for a love scene with a haircut. Boyer joked that it was t- when it was time to get a haircut, he meant that in the scene where he kissed the leading lady, the camera would focus only on the back of his head, hence the need for a trim. Understated as always, his self-deprecating humor underscored what he did best, making women look better.
Irene had been so impressed by Charles Boyer's performance in Love Affair when she caught it in the revival that she rang him up and told him. His response was classic Boyer. Oh, so you finally saw me. Thanks very much for listening. You can find Love Affair on YouTube if you haven't seen it. I'll be taking a break from the podcast right now, but I'll return with new episodes in November. Catch up on the archive if you like. Catch a screening of a film if you're in Dublin uh, for the Film Club series in September. Or look for new essays on sassmouthdames.com. Thanks very much. Bye.